Well, thank you for being here this evening. It is a blessing to worship the Lord together and to hear from God's Word. It may seem small, it may seem humble, and in, in many ways it is just this small gathering of God's people here on a Sunday evening, but yet that is the way God works, through ordinary and humble means. We know that we have God's Word, and God uses His Word in the lives of His people. And it is powerful. God's Word is sharp, it's authoritative, it's living, it is true, and we do well to pay attention to it, and to read it, and to seek to understand it, and to live it. As I was studying this text and um, wrestling somewhat with it, I was reminded of the words from 2 Peter where Peter speaks of Paul's writings and says there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And I couldn't help but wonder if, if maybe Peter was looking at Galatians 3 in this middle part of this chapter as he, he was perhaps wrestling with some of Paul's words. Um, Pastor King mentioned last week uh, that for certain portions of this chapter, there are literally hundreds of opinions on how it should be interpreted. I'm not going to go into all of that, and I trust that we can still keep a big picture to understand what the Apostle is saying here. I am a bit apprehensive as I think about this, and even just a few moments ago I was looking at the title of my sermon that I had chosen, The Purpose of the Law. I trust that is not uh, pretentious on my part. I don't aim to give you everything that can be said about the law. But I hope to be faithful to the text and understand what Paul has said. Paul, of course, has been somewhat repetitive in, in calling the Galatians and teaching us that justification is by faith alone. He, of course, has gone to battle with the Judaizers, and they were attempting to add to the gospel, and he pointed out that for their father and our father Abraham, justification was by faith alone, just as their justification was by faith alone. He's pointed out already in this chapter the futility of trying to earn righteousness, to earn um, rightness with God by obeying the law, because if you do that, you must obey it in its entirety. And if you try to do that, you will fail. And failure to obey brings a curse, and that helps us see how that curse that is rightly and justly ours for our disobedience to God's law has fallen instead upon Christ. Christ became a curse for us, and that is the, the glorious good news of the gospel, that Christ bore our curse upon a tree. And in the passage that Pastor King preached last week, we saw the, the relation between the law and the promise. And now we're ready to pick up at verse 19, where Paul asks the pointed question, why then the law? And that gives us the title for our message, The Purpose of the Law. And, but because of this text is part of a larger argument, I would like for us just to back up and, and pick up the reading in verse 10, and we'll read through the end of this chapter. So please, if you will, um, open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Galatians 3.10. But before I read, let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon His holy word. Lord God, as we come to Your word, we are both comforted, knowing that, that You speak in and through Your word to us today. But Lord, we are also in awe, and Lord, we are also very mindful of the fact that we need your Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word. 
So Lord, I pray that, that Your Spirit would be among us. Lord, that, that You would anoint my mind and lips to speak forth the truth. Lord, and that the words would, would fall upon hearts and soil that is ready to receive the good news of the Gospel. Lord, give us grace to believe Your promise and trust in You. Lord, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Galatians 3:10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human examples, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, rather referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given. To those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. I'll ask for a show of hands on this. How many remember classified ads in newspapers? All right, I see several hands. Maybe I should have asked first, how many remember print newspapers? Because newspapers are almost a thing of the past. But back in the day, in the classified section of the newspaper, which is for, for those that, that a, modern, a modern equivalent might be Facebook Marketplace. But back in the day, in the classified sections, you could get anything from a used car to a re used refrigerator. Um, and, you know, many useful and sometimes useless things. But 
When I was in high school, I remember looking at a classified ad and, and chuckling about it with a friend of mine, and the ad went something like this. Free engine parts. Just finished overhaul of my engine and have a few spare parts left. And my friend and I, with a little bit of smug arrogance, you know, nudged each other and say, well, I wonder what he left out of that overhaul. But it seems almost like that here in this text, where Paul has given us this, this exposition of salvation by faith alone and told us that we are not justified by the works of the law. We are cursed if we try to gain salvation by adherence to the law. And so if we, if we look at that and we agree with that, if that's the right way to salvation, it, it's almost like we want to ask Paul, Paul, what about that box of parts over there that says law on the side of it? What are we going to do with that? What's the purpose of that? Did you leave something out of your project? Well, Paul here gives us his reason for the law. I would say at least three reasons, and, and that's going to form the outline of our sermon this morning, that, that Paul says that, that the law reveals sin, it shuts us in, and the law drives us to Christ. Now, I've already said, and I'll say again, there's much more to be said about the law of God, but I want us to stay close to this text, and that we can say from this text that, that the law reveals sin, it shuts us in, and the law drives us to Christ. Verse 19 tells us, and, and that is the, the beginning of the text we want to consider in depth, that the law was added because of transgressions. Now, that in itself might seem a little bit obscure and, and we're not sure what it means, but it might be helpful to consider some of Paul's other writings about the law. He said in Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law brings a knowledge of sin. It shows us where the lines are. It tells us what sin is. It describes it to us. It gives us the prohibitions that are, in many cases, the law. It tells us what we are not to do. Romans 5.20 tells us, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, I would imagine that if you're like me, you're from more familiar with the second part of that verse than the first. The part that says where sin increased or where sin abounded, I think it says in the King James, grace abounded all the more. And that's a glorious gospel truth. But he says in the first part of that verse that the law came to increase the trespass. It means that the law stirs up sin in us. It, it doesn't create the sin, but it, it stirs it up within us. Paul said in Romans 7, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Romans 7, 7 and 8. And that is really what Paul is saying here in verse 19, that the law came to increase sin. Now, I thought of an illustration that I think shows us this, perhaps. Um, before my grandmother died, she liked to tell me the story about when my mother was a child. 
You know, kids love to hear stories about their parents when they were small. Um, But when my mother was small, my grandparents had just hired an electrician to bring electricity to their house. Now, I I know you're thinking, Pastor Wegener must be really old. But that's true. My grandparents were, were married in 1932 and built their house without electricity. And it was after my mother was born in 33, I believe it was, that they got electricity to the house. And my mother was very small at that time, and she overheard the electrician say to my grandmother, now make sure this, your little girl doesn't put anything in the outlets, like a hairpin or anything. Well, the electrician left, and, and the way my grandmother described her, or at least the way I heard it in my mind, it was only a matter of minutes that my mother found a hairpin and started to try to put that in the electrical outlet. And my grandmother stopped her from what would have been a rather shocking experience. But she, she heard the law, and immediately she wanted to break the law. She wanted to, to experience what she wasn't supposed to experience. The law was given, and it increased the sin. The law shows us our sin, and it increases our sin. The law is not the answer, is what Paul is saying. But God did not leave us simply to increase all the more and the more in our sin. He has provided a solution for us. He tells about the promised offspring that would come. The law was there as a temporary arrangement until the promised one would come. As one commentator helpfully said, the law is a sort of parenthesis between the promise given to Abraham and the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we, could, we, we have to understand that, that the law is a reflection of the character of God and is permanent in that sense, and that it was given to Adam and it was based upon the character of God, and, and that is why that we must make distinctions when we talk about the law, and theologians make distinctions between the moral law and the civil and ceremonial laws. We know that Paul here is dealing with the administration of the law under Moses with all its ceremonies, circumcisions, and sacrifices. And these aspects of the law were enforced between Mount Sinai and Mount Calvary. And the giving of the law in Sinai was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, Pastor King touched on this last week, and I, will thank, I want to thank him publicly for dealing with, with at least initially with with some of the challenges of this text. And you have to wonder, what in the world does that mean? Because if you read Exodus 19, you you hear about a lot of spectacular things, but you don't read about angels per se. Well, we do know that at the end of his life, Moses blessed the people of Israel and said this in Deuteronomy 33. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came, from the, he came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And at least two places in the New Testament, we read about the giving of the law being accompanied by angels. One of those was the, 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 the wonderful speech that, that Stephen gave that were his last words before he was stoned as the first Christian martyr. And he brought these scathing indictments against the, the leaders of Israel there. And he said in Acts 7, he said that they received the law as delivered by angels, but of course they failed to keep it. The point that Paul is making here is that the promise given directly to Abraham was superior 
to the law given to Moses that was given through angels to Moses to the people. The, 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 the word of promise given to Abraham was superior in that it came directly from God. It came directly from God to Abraham. And what the, what the Apostle Paul here is doing is he's making a comparison and he's showing the superiority of the word of promise to Abraham over the law that came to Moses as the intermediary. intermediary. And this, this mediation of the law helps us see that that is inferior to the word of promise. J.V. Fesco says this um, about this. He says the Abrahamic covenant included the unchanging and irrevocable divine promises that come directly from God through Christ and saves the people of God. The Mosaic Covenant was revocable, mediated through angels and Moses, and powerless to save. Salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone, not through obedience to the law. And that's really what Paul has been saying all along here in chapter 3. But before we move to our second point, we want to just dwell for a moment on the fact that Paul points out in verse 21 that the law, even though he makes this comparison between law and promise, he is not pitting them against each other. He's just saying that, that the law cannot give life. It brings death. The law brings death. It brings a curse because we cannot keep it. And I hope that as we consider the law, we're beginning to feel the weight and the despair that it brings with it. And that brings us to our second point, that the law shuts us in. I choose that language because what Paul does here in, in this text is he combines a couple different metaphors to help us see how the law shuts us in. First, he says, it's a prison warden. Verse 22 says that the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, all of Scripture points to our need for Christ. Verse 23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. We are locked up. We are inmates, and the law is the prison warden. Now, you may have seen movies that depict prison wardens as sinister individuals, maybe maybe even breaking the law themselves to inflict punishment upon the prisoners. But try not to think in those terms per se, but think about what a prison warden does. What is his job? His job is to keep the prisoners in the prison and to keep peace while they're there. He wants to keep everyone there. And that's what the law does. It locks us up. It detains us for a time. The law as a prison warden, is it, it cannot reform us. It only keeps us shut up, shut up in hopes that there is something on the other side. And in the case of mankind, of course, it is someone that they are looking for. One in whom they can hope on the other side of that imprisonment. The other metaphor that Paul uses is that of a guardian. In the Greek, the root word is pedagogos, and the word from which we get pedagogue. In modern usage, that word means a teacher. However, in Paul's day, it was a bit different. In the days of ancient Rome, uh, a pedagogue was a slave, probably captured in wartime. It was often an older man who maybe, who maybe couldn't be uh, taught to fight, or maybe he was too old or frail, but 
but then he would be sold as a slave and, and some rich family would purchase him and make him the overseer or the guardian for their, for their, young, for their son. And this would last from the time the child was about six until he was a, a, nearly an adult in his later teens. And the, the pedagogue was to make sure that the boy went to school, that he, that he worked hard, that he displayed good manners, that he did his homework. He would often drill him in his homework. He, he would follow the boy everywhere he went. He would wait for him often at school. And in, as, as a father, I, I think this sounds like maybe a good idea. But this is what it was. And this is what Paul had in mind here. So how would you young people like that to have someone follow you around to make sure that you did everything you were supposed to do and maybe smack you on the head if you didn't use your manners? Well, the pedagogue was a disciplinarian. The pedagogue was the one who pointed out all the boys' faults. And that's what the law does. It shows us our faults. It shuts us in. And that's really the picture that, that Paul is painting for the people under the Old Covenant. They were there. They were imprisoned. They were under a guardian. They were, they were not free. They were, they were hemmed in. They were shut up looking for the Lord Jesus Christ until Christ came, it says in verse 24. Calvin said about this, it was to hold their minds in readiness until His coming, meaning Christ, even to kindle desire for Him and to strengthen their expectation in order that they might not grow faint by too long delay. It helps us to see and appreciate the, the incarnation of Christ and the coming of Christ. And we, I thought of the, the, the song we sing at Christmas, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. And as we sing songs like that, we should think of Galatians 3 and how the people of God were imprisoned under the law, held in, shut up, and, and kept by a guardian looking for the revelation of Jesus Christ, awaiting the Messiah and the dawn of the new age that he brought. And it was not, of course, that, that those that were shut up and imprisoned under the law were without faith. We've seen already in Galatians 3 that Abraham very much had faith, that he too was justified by faith. Yet the object of his faith and their faith, the saints of the old covenant, had not been fully revealed. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But we're not preaching that text this evening. You've got to wait and come back in a few weeks for that. But in a redemptive historical sense, the law shut in the people of God, imprisoning them and, and helping them to look with eager expectation for the coming of Christ. And that leads us to our final point, that the law drives us to Christ. I think in our text here this evening, what we've just looked at is the primary understanding of this text, that we, we should think of it in a historical sense of the people under the old covenant being shut in and imprisoned under the law. But I think there is a sense in which the law should drive us to Christ today as well. 
Theologians of centuries past have pointed to this term pedagogue and said that there is a pedagogical use of the law, and that is to drive us to Christ personally and individually. And as we think about this whole passage, we should recognize the the inadequacy of ourselves in obeying God's law. The law condemns us personally. The law shuts us in individually. When we reflect upon God's moral law, we recognize that we fall short of it. When we read and meditate upon the Ten Commandments, I trust that we do not think about them in terms like this, that we are glad we have not broken them. If that's what we think, we need to look a little closer at Jesus' words in Matthew 5, where he helps us understand really what it meant to obey God's moral law. And we need to ask ourselves, have we truly loved the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And have we loved our neighbor as ourselves? Because those words sum up all the law and the prophets, Jesus said. When we hear the Ten Commandments, when we consider God's moral law, we ought to consider how we have broken them and that we must flee to Christ. Martin Luther said, After the law has humbled you and utterly beaten you down, See that you learn to use it rightly, for the office and use of it is not only to reveal sin and convict us of it, but also to drive men to Christ. This use of the law, the Holy Ghost set forth in the gospel, where he witnessed that God is present with the afflicted and brokenhearted, and we hear Christ's voice saying to us, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." This is the true and best use of the law, Luther said, when it drives men to Christ. Jesus came not to break the bruised reed or to quench the faintly burning wick, but he came to proclaim good news to the poor and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. When we hear the law's loud thunder accusing us and often rightly accusing us of sin, it's then that we need to look to the Savior It's then we need to look to the Lord who is gentle and lowly. The Lord Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we close, I want to to remind us that Paul speaks firmly against the law when when he is talking about it as the basis of salvation, for it was never intended to save. But at other times, we must understand and appreciate that Paul speaks very highly of the law. In Ephesians chapter 6, he, he quotes the fifth commandment in reminding children of the new covenant and, and children to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. So because of, of this um, challenging uh, consideration of of how we view the law, theologians have considered different uses of the law. And I I don't want to go into this. However, I will commend to you chapter 19 of our Westminster Confession of Faith, which is concerning the law of God, where it's a a very uh, helpful understanding of the uses of the law. But our sermon this evening is not about the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is about what Paul is saying and what God is speaking to us here from Galatians 3. 
Here Paul has clearly reminded the Galatians that the law reveals sin in us. It shuts us in, serving as a prison warden and as a pedagogue to the people of God under the old covenant. And it also served to demonstrate to us our need of Christ. If we are outside of Christ, it should drive us to Him as the only means of salvation. I was thinking this morning as, as we were preparing for our, confession, our time of confession, so often I think we come feeling beaten down. And, and there are those within the, the church that would say, oh, you just need to forget about the law. No, don't forget about the law, saints of God. Flee to Christ. Let the law drive you to the Lord Jesus who perfectly obeyed the law and made a way of salvation so that we could be made right with Him. When we look to the law and see our own failing, let us look to Christ who completely and faithfully obeyed the law of God. As we close, let me just uh, leave you with the words of this hymn that we often sing. Let us love and sing and wonder let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Amen. Let us pray.